0: you've probably heard that it's better to buy no business than the wrong business. You've also probably heard that at some point when evaluating a business to buy, you can't diligence away all the risk and just have to take the leap. Well, you may notice the contradiction in those two maxims. We're basically saying small businesses are messy and emotional and you'll never get perfect information. But by accepting that, We're accepting that some number of acquisition entrepreneurs, despite best efforts, are just going to get burned. Today's guest, Judd Lorson, went through such a crucible. He followed the best practices. He diligenced the business he bought. He showed it to his experienced investors, who also liked it. And yet still, shortly after getting into the CEO seat, he realizes, uh uh-oh. The painful fact of Judd's story, other than the guy's suffering, is that I'm not sure what the lesson is. He seemed to do everything right. If I missed it and you see it, please let me know what that lesson is. And if you otherwise get value from this story, let Judd know he's earned it. Here he is, search survivor, Judd Lorson. (laughs) Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Wouldn't it be great to have experts at your back when buying a business? People to help you polish up your pitch and processes as you go to market as a searcher, then help you evaluate opportunities once you get some deal flow. Such experts exist, buy-side advisors, but they'll cost you to the tune of tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars. But another option exists, the Acquisition Lab. The lab is a do it with you buy side advisory service, not do it for you. Founded by Walker Dybel, author of Buy Then Build, the lab represents Walker's vision for what is most needed to make a searcher successful and available at an accessible price. It's cohort based, and you will come out the other side of your cohort prepared to go to market as a savvy searcher with a tight message and process, so brokers take you seriously, pre-approved for a loan, and with an entire community at your disposal to help you along the journey to buying a business. To learn more, check out acquisitionlab.com, link in the show notes. Judd Lorson, thank you for joining me, sir, on acquiring minds. Good to be here. Really pleased that you said yes to this interview, Judd. Uh, it's probably gonna be a, a bit of a roller coaster. Uh, I'm going to ask you to relive your experience, of course, buying a business. But uh, in your case, that was a pretty fraught experience, uh, but it is a, a story that is deserving of all of our admiration, if it didn't quite turn out the way that you probably hoped that it would uh, when you first set out to buy the business. So without much more intro, let's just get into it. Judd, why don't you start us off with a bit of your background?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I, uh, I grew up in north central Pennsylvania. That happens to be where I'm sitting at today. So my life has kind of kind of come full circle <laughs> in a number of ways. But uh, I grew up here um, on a farm, first generation college graduate, went to Drexel University uh, to study engineering down at Philadelphia um, and during my time there. Decided that I didn't want to be an engineer in the traditional sense of the word. Um, after having done a few kind of full time stints in the co-op program that they offer as 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 an engineer designing cars out in Ohio for a Honda working for the Philadelphia Water Department, et cetera. So I got a pretty good idea of kind of what engineers do on a day-to-day basis. And I was looking for something kind of a bit more hands-on and with some more leadership uh, opportunities initially ended up, uh, taking a year off, uh, of college doing a gap year before the cool kids were doing it. <laughs> I didn't know that that's what it was at the time, but I just needed some time to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next with my life. That ended up being, uh, joining the military and, and, and serving, uh, our country, um, in the submarine force. Um, so I ended up, uh, uh, going through the Navy's nuclear power program and serving on board nuclear-powered submarines. Uh, it was a great experience. Did it for almost eight years. Was uh, four deployed and uh, spent a lot of time overseas, um, but uh, got a really great leadership experience out of that and, and kind of started to open my eyes to some different uh, types of opportunities that i didn't wouldn't have wouldn't have realized existed uh when I was growing up. Um so did that for for almost eight years. Um and then uh my wife and I, who I'll mention throughout this interview, we had not yet decided to start a family and we were looking to kind of settle down a little bit more. And um that can be challenging to do in in the military when you're gone a lot and you're 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 bouncing bouncing all over the place at the, at the, the, the whim of, of someone else. Um, so I decided to get out. I'd done it long enough to kind of get the t-shirt as I say, but not (laughs) so long that I was, uh, closer to getting that 20 year retirement than I was from, from doing something different. Um, so ended up, uh, evaluating different opportunities to use the GI bill to go to graduate school. Um, I'd always been interested in, in kind of business from from an early age uh, so i ended up getting an mba went to yale um, som and got my degree there and while i was there i found out about acquisition through entrepreneurship which put kind of some uh it put some infrastructure and in, in kind of like uh, words and idea behind something i had kind of contemplated myself kind of running a business, like that was the point of going to business school that I wanted to, I wanted to own and operate a business. I thought that kind of meant raising money or doing a startup. Um, But uh, when I found about ETA and and started digging in, it it really kind of uh, really made my aspirations come to life. Um, So I ended up doing that after, after business school.
0: You and the startup path, raising money, doing, starting from scratch, that was what you envisioned entrepreneurship being, and it didn't. It didn't appeal to you. That's why ETA did grab you.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I guess there's another point to make. There is, I don't know. Like I had done these these kind of hard things to that point. Like I, I left home. I joined the military. I was deployed overseas, and and had all this kind of responsibility. And I felt like I wanted to do something that scaled to that to that set of experiences. Right. So. Hmm the idea of kind of like just returning home and like owning kind of like the small business, like didn't make sense to me at the time, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like at the, at the time, right. In the, in the, in the early 2010s, right. Like it's just like all about venture back startups and how big they got, and like how that was, how that was the, the way to kind of take your ambition and match it to an opportunity. Right, and I had never really kind of scaled that to a small business where I could be, be like the primary owner, or like have a really big opportunity there on the smaller side of things. Which is frankly like where my background and experiences and, and kind of interests lie. I just didn't know that that existed.
0: So acquisition entrepreneurship, uh, what you liked about it was that it actually kind of kind of being in small business did kind of fit you culturally, but it just seemed a little under ambitious until ETA. Showed you that there you could buy a small business, and there really could be this ambitious path behind it. Is that? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think mm-hmm. it,
1: it kind of a, this, the the scaled opportunity was there, right? Mm-hmm. Even though it wasn't a billion dollar startup, right? Like the opportunity to own to own a piece of or most of a ten million dollar business was more than I had ever dreamed was possible. Um, sure. Growing up in in Central PA.
0: Great. So you, so you learn about it at Yale, uh, school of management and uh, what do they have one class on ETA or are there, is there more than one? Just tell us real quick.
1: Yeah. So when I, when I was there, I I graduated in 2017 and midway through my experience, um, was when I started to really push the ETA button. There weren't any classes, even though uh, a lot of other peer schools, um, had a, a dedicated program, um, there weren't any classes. There wasn't like a, an instructor or any mentors, etc. When we get further along in the story here on how I made my selection, some of some of some of the the facts on the ground at Yale that there just wasn't a whole lot of infrastructure there helped inform that choice. But anyway, there, there weren't any classes. I, I had the good fortune of. Meeting um, uh, a professor who I'd call a mentor and a friend at this point, AJ Wasserstein, who's well known in the in the in the ETA circles, um, who happened to to live close to 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 New Haven in Connecticut, and be at a, at a point in his life where he was ready to kind of dig into his next project. So. Um, I, I introduced him to the, to the faculty at Yale and he ended up joining and and teaching the first class that I was involved in as a, I didn't even get the chance to go through it as a student. I just started as the teaching assistant (laughs) because, um, there, this was the first iteration of that. And at this point, I mean, he, he does a ton of writing. I collaborated uh, with him on the case note that we're, we're kind of talking about today, but he, he releases, he releases new stuff kind of on a. On a, on a monthly basis and he teaches a, a handful of classes at this point at Yale. so there's a there's a there's a ton of ton of ton of uh, academic infrastructure that that's been built there by by him over the past Past number
0: of years, I, I saw AJ Walczorski st- speak at uh, in Orlando. He was at uh, SM Bash in January. Um, awesome, yeah, and AJ yeah, a really uh, told told his story. Really dynamic speaker. Okay, so you're teaching you're the teaching assistant in, in your second year at the MBA program. Your second year at the MBA program, right? Second, year, yeah, exactly, yeah, yep, yep. Um, alongside AJ, and you're basically you've decided this is going to be your path. So you graduate, then what?
1: Yeah, and and maybe just to back up for for a second, the that part of the purpose of that kind of second year and teaching the class like it wasn't just all altruistic, like let's get a class for SFM because they need one. It was like, well, what can Judd get out of this, right? And I had the opportunity yeah. to to work alongside of AJ as he stood the class up, um, but also like meet a meet a meet a number of people, guests that he bought the brought to the class, right, to kind of. Try and hit that hit that number of like talking to a couple dozen people to really kind of fully inform the choice, right? I, I'd say for for me, it was was a little bit harder for than for other people in twenty circa twenty seventeen that, that like went to a school where they had like fifty alumni that like had done the thing, right? Like Stanford or Harvard or even even Booth or North uh, Northwestern, right? Um, but that was that was kind of my between the the first and second year I had decided that I wanted to and then the second year I was trying to decide how, right? Mm-hmm. Like how should I go about doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I had decided how before I graduated. So I used that second year to kind of evaluate the different options, right? Self-funded search was was, I don't even know if it was a named thing yet. It was just kind of becoming like this nebulous idea of, of, of something that like certainly people did, but like starting to call it self-funded search. So I evaluated that uh, a little bit. My wife and I had, uh, she had a good job and we had enough resources where we felt like that, that on paper, it was a viable option. Right. Um, And as I looked at the other two models, uh, if if we say that there are kind of like three general paths, self-funded accelerator backed and, uh, traditionally funded, I, for whatever reason, didn't, didn't want to do the traditionally funded path. Right. I think it was a a combination of nobody at Yale except for like one guy had kind of done it and he he starts in the Dominican Republic. So he's kind of like off on, off on his own journey. Um, I didn't feel like I, despite the fact that I knew AJ and he had invested in a ton of these things, like he didn't, he didn't necessarily push me in one direction or another. Um, certainly, I think I could have raised the funded search, but uh, I was, I was kind of like looking for hacks at that point. I was like, how can I stack the deck in my favor to, to increase the chance of success? And I was defining success at that point as the opportunity to run a business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt, uh, even though accelerators are fairly new. Um, at the time that that cohort cohort based learning environment and and the resources that the that they were communicating that they would bring to bear would give me the best chance of of successfully acquiring a business right um, and not making kind of a not making a mistake with with all my own money which is what it would have boiled down to as a self winded searcher because I had some leadership experience I felt pretty confident that I would. That I would understand how to operate inside of a small business, having kind of come from that environment culturally, growing up, plus serving in, in small kind of specialized units on a on a submarine. Um, but I didn't have finance experience. I didn't have deal making experience. I had never done diligence on a deal. All those things were were fairly nebulous foreign topics that. These days, I tell I tell aspiring self funded searchers like you can figure out it's fine. It's not rocket science. <laughs> but at the time, like I felt like it was a an insurmountable kind of uh, wall that I didn't want to take the risk of of kind of climbing by myself.
0: So you so self funded. You just felt like you'd be kind of flapping in the wind. So you liked the infrastructure around the self funded. Excuse me, the um, an accelerator model. And in terms of, but but you had said on the economics piece. In fact, you could have gone self-funded, retaining much more equity, um, but you wanted the infrastructure around you, which you thought an accelerator would provide. And and these accelerators, generally, the economics are the same as with a traditional, right? So you're looking at max twenty five percent ownership. Exactly.
1: They're they're very similar. They have kind of similar vesting schedules. Similar. Similar overall economics. Each one has their own unique kind of twist on things, whether it's a preferred return or a, a, a shared equity pool with your cohort, or or a piece of the overall GP. All of them have a different different way to skin the cat, but at the end of the day, they're they're all very similar to the traditional the the, the traditional the traditionally funded economics of twenty five percent, a third, a third, a third.
0: And and so even though you could have afforded a self funded search. Um, it didn't bother you that you were going to be giving away a large chunk of the economics to do to do a, the accelerator route. August Felker is a two-time successful searcher. First with a traditional search fund. The second time around, he did a self-funded search. Today, August runs Oberly Risk Strategies, an insurance firm with a dedicated practice group for searchers and acquisition entrepreneurs like you. If you've got a business under LOI, Oberly will provide complimentary due diligence on that business's insurance and benefits program. A great no risk way to get to know August and team. They love helping searchers, they've worked with hundreds. Oberly is a specialty insurance brokerage for searchers by a former searcher. Check out Oberly Risk.com, O B E R L E hyphen Risk.com, link in the show notes.
1: No, I again I'll go back to like I really wanted to I wanted a chance to operate a business. That was yeah. that was where my primary motivation was and I didn't I didn't think about the economics maybe as much as I do these days, right? Mm. And and maybe I was I was certainly less experienced. I was maybe a little bit naive on how I looked about these those things and kind of evaluated the the differences. Um I wasn't like sitting around with with a spreadsheet trying to model out like the overall upside and the opportunity cost to it all. It was more of a, a qualitative decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Than a quantitative mm-hmm.
0: one. So you, and so you proceed with, with one of the accelerators and, and um, with the, you know, kind of the promise of, of a, a handholding, for lack of a better word, infrastructure support, um, you know, not, uh, you know, guardrails maybe is a better way to put it so that
1: you don't make a terrible mistake. And so how does that, how, how does that go? Yeah, no, I, uh, when I look back at it, what I remember the most is the opportunity to work in a cohort-based environment, um, which I didn't. That's that's not wasn't the primary uh, the primary driver for kind of selecting the accelerator, but it was ended up being the value that that I got out of it, right? And for whatever reason, I don't know that this kind of cohort has been cre- recreated since, but it was four guys, right? I mean, there happens to be a lot of men in this space, right? So it's four guys, right? Looking for, looking for a business to buy. And we all happen to have some sort of connection to the state of Pennsylvania or Philadelphia uh, more particularly, right? So we just kind of like rallied behind that commonality and and really kind of joined together you would you would think that like hey these are all type by people that are trying to buy their own business so like throwing them together in one environment like is that <laughs> going to create some like uncomfortable competitive dynamics but i think we all like signing up for for an accelerator like you're kind of agreeing to check your ego at the door a little bit and you're signing up for some of the camaraderie to, to help, uh, rally yourself when you're at the lows and celebrate the highs together when you're at the highs. Um, but, uh, we all, we all just quickly gelled. Right. And Mm -hmm. and we ended up adding a lot of value to each other's searches and we continue to this day to stay in in close touch and, uh, and, 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 add value to to each other as we as we uh operate businesses for the for the other three we all ended up acquiring right so like if you look at the stanford study and say well 25 percent of people don't find a business we beat that right yeah, as a sure. as a group um yeah. i think that had a lot to do with it right so 100 percent of us acquired a business um the other three are still operating i've since taking a step back that we'll talk about here in in a bit, right? But uh, I got a lot of value out of that and I continue to get value out of it. Um, That's a public service announcement or disclaimer, right? Like you're not guaranteed to have that experience if you go to an accelerator, but there's a chance that you will and that's going to be invaluable.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it reminds me what people say about a lot of different educational institutions. It's like the the people you meet there, your your
1: comrades, um, while you're there. Yeah. It's
0: actually it's actually yeah, the exactly. most valuable thing. Yeah.
1: yeah. Okay. It, yeah. However, yeah. at ahead. a search accelerator, the the sample size is so small. <laughs> right. Like when you're when you're at a college, right, or a business school, right? Like you've got a couple hundred feet people and you can sort through them to find your tribe. Right. Totally. But uh yeah you uh, got lucky <laughs> everybody is self subscribed to like looking for a business. But the the way in which we got along interacted with, interacted then and continued to interact, I think is, is, is particularly special. And I'm uh, thankful that I, that I had that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. How fortunate. So you, you you go through the accelerator, you embark on your search. Actually, let me just, um, pause to say you, you mentioned a few minutes ago, the note that you co-wrote with AJ Wasserstein. So that's how we met. Um, there'll of course be a link in the show notes to this, but this whole, your whole story, you've put, pen to paper and alongside AJ, you know, published this great case study about it. Um, so a lot of, so that's how I found you and your story. And and a lot of this conversation is going to be based on um, what I read there. Um, so just that, that's some context for people that I failed to mention at the outset. One of the things that you mentioned in there is, is it, you were really rigorous in your, in your search, Uh um, the number of kind of industries that you that you researched and 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 really kind of um kind of stress tested and then within those industries the cold outreach that you were doing so talk us through what that looked like i was i was impressed by some of that process
1: sure uh i mean i think my approach was you hear different people talking about maybe the rifle versus the shotgun approach mine certainly was more of the shotgun approach right yep. I, I didn't have any particular professional expertise in any particular industry, right? So I went, I went into search knowing that, and just kind of embracing it and trying to apply, where I thought my skill set and interests would 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 serve me best in in the most the most types of situations or industries, right? And so I picked a handful to start right and then from there kind of using what i'll call the aisle over approach right you'd learn about something interesting in fire protection you'd look at one of those businesses you'd look at their PL and see where they spent money uh what they spent money on and that would inspire you to kind of look at something a little bit different right so i had a, a an industry-based approach to kind of to, to to cock the shotgun and shoot it as many times in as many different directions with as wide a spread pattern as possible. Um, and some of the infrastructure that the accelerator built really facilitated that a lot of traditionally funded searchers kind of built this for themselves and even self-funded searchers at this point, this, this wide, this wide funnel where you're, where you're you're essentially finding the emails of as many business owners as, as you can and, 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 and pushing that forward. One other thing that I, I don't know if I talked about in the note or not, that uh, helped inspire some ideas was running very narrow searches on what I'd call kind of third tier geographies where I had a connection to um, mm-hmm. where you could go and pull a list of all the businesses that met your kind of overall size criteria in that, in that geography and just emailing them all, right. To see if they'd be interested in, in, in a sale. And, and through that, like you ended up having a lot of like conversations cause you'd say, Hey, I grew up here. or Hey, I've lived here. I know somebody that lives here, right? Like you could create a really authentic story for yourself to to kind of break down the the barriers that that business owners often put up for for some of this cold outreach, right? And that also, not only did I get to see some interesting businesses, but it inspired some some ideas for some on, other industries that uh, I wouldn't have initially considered, right? Because you're kind of when you're when you're running a high volume search or a shotgun based approach, right? You're always you're always trying to fuel the engine with new ideas of different things to look at. And that's one way I found uh, I found valuable to, to, to find it's find examples of businesses you would have never heard of.
0: And you did that in central Pennsylvania,
1: I assume, where you're yeah, from. I, did I, you do I, it I in up other up. geographies? Yeah, I picked a number of geographies um, where my wife and I, uh, we would like to live or had a deep, per- and and had a deep personal connection to, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, when you look at the scaled approach, yes, th- I had different geographic hooks for like every, f- all 50 states, but like these campaigns were a little bit different, right? Like they were like, I went to Williamsport High School, right? Like I lived in Goose Creek, South Carolina for a year when I was in the military, right? So like being able to have a, 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 a more specific hook Helped increase some response rates and, sure. and, and prompted more conversations.
0: Sure. In the note, you talk about. I mean, you, you, it sounds like you really did a good job at this outreach because um, there were days where you just had back to back calls. Like you were really, you were really quite successful at filling your funnel. Correct?
1: Yeah. No. And you, I think you used the words kind of successful and and uh, rigorous. I'd, I'd use the words bull in, a th- bull in a China shop, right? Like I wanted to buy a business, right? Like I'm kind of an introvert. I'm not a natural sales guy. So I was just like trying to find ways to push forward and, and to use kind of like simple disciplines to keep the volume high with the expectation that if I did that, right, like it's, it's a numbers game at the end of the day. And if I did that, and I was able to to build appropriate screens. I'd be able to sift through the volume and shake the one out at the bottom within the in the time frame of search. And I think that's generally speaking, at the time I was doing search, that's how most other people were kind of approaching it. I know there have been some different different philosophies that have emerged since, but that's the way I went about it. And uh, I just kept kept pushing forward, kept charging right, mm-hmm. like every day, every week. Um, and yeah, some days, I mean, I would be talking. Talking on the phone for like ten hours a day, right? At the end of the day, like I was, even though I sat in chair all day, I was completely exhausted because I'm not, I'm not naturally inclined to do that. Left to my own devices, um, but I knew that's what needed to be done to accomplish the the goal that I'd set out to do. So I did it.
0: The um, and you actually some of these conversations really bared fruit. I mean, you, you submitted offers. T- so talk us through some of these these broken deals. And weave in, you know, the the conversations when you when you have, you know, something that looks like you're going to make an offer on, or maybe even have made an offer on. Um, how you interface with your investors on on that front, and the investors, of course, are the folks at the accelerator.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I use the the example from the note where I had this. <laughs> I mean, the, the accelerator was working Wednesday's based in Boston, right? My wife was living in Hartford. Um, I, I ran kind of a geographic campaign in the Great for Hartford area because staying put had high value to us, especially since like I'd been in the military, we'd been bumping around all over the place, and like we were looking to start a family and like develop roots in the community. So, anyway, uh, long story short, I developed a relationship with a with a small growing uh, IT MSP in the Greater Hartford area, and had gotten to the point where I requested a bunch of information. It was a proprietary deal off market. This was probably the first time or the second time the owner had thought about selling his business, but I was, I was on paper, the son he never had, right? Like I went for a business, took me for a ride in his Tesla, right? Like it was, (laughs) it was, it was kumbaya around the campfire, right? So anyway, (laughs) I ended up, uh, having conversations with, with my investors about that business, right. Reservations about maybe the geography it was in the, if this was the best opportunity that I was, I was going to see, cause it was fairly early on in my search within the first six months or so. Um, we, we talked through those, um, it had high, I, I was kind of anchored to it from a personal standpoint, because again, like my wife and I, we went out to dinner with the seller and his wife. Um, right before I kind of submitted the, the, the formal offer to buy the business, I'd used a uh, uh, a, a two tier kind of offer system where I submit an indication of interest or an IOI to kind of make sure that, the, that there was some formal agreement on price expectations and then request some additional, uh, accounting and, and other data to, to, to formulate a formal letter of intent to get signed. So in between that, that, Initial offer that was accepted, and before I kind of submitted the LOI, I I'd, I'd met with this guy four or five times. Right, I had met with his control, his retiring controller, to go over some of the financial information. My wife and I had gone out to eat with him and his wife in, 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 in a West Hartford restaurant. Right, and like it was, it was like all good. Right, I mean you've heard these stories before, but until they've happened to you, you don't like know how the how it's going to end. Right, um, so I anyway, ended up submitting the LOI my wife and i became very anchored to it right like it was a reasonable opportunity but like it was really really good for us and what yeah. we wanted to do right
0: yeah yeah on
1: the investor side it was like well is this really the best one is it is it big enough is it growing fast enough there are 7000 ISP or msps in the us is this does this rise to the top right is it the is is it the cream that rises to the top that that makes sense on making investment I don't know that's 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 kind of tough to say but anyway i submitted an offer and it fell through so, so those those conversations both with my wife on like us getting super excited about an opportunity and kind of being on an emotional high to, to going in the complete opposite direction and and some of the friction with 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 the the capital providers and whether or not this was going to be the best look I was going to get um, they kind of subsided until it was on to the next one okay and is there
0: any takeaway <clears throat> for for people who have investors or who are going to do a traditional search or an accelerator uh, on working with investors? I mean, did were, were your let, let me ask this more simple simply were your investors correct? Like in, in retrospect, do you think that they were right to interrogate your your interest in the business, um, or or is there something something else to be learned from your disagreement um, with them uh, on your interest in this business in this MSP in Hartford? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's the role that they serve, right? Is to be, to play the devil's advocate, right? Um, especially for, for, I think, young aspiring entrepreneurs, right? Um, that have a bias towards action, right? Like that's the reason why we're going to be successful <laughs> ultimately in the things that we choose to do. So I don't think it was incorrect for them to really kind of pressure test the opportunity and, and how I was thinking about it, et cetera. It's tough to tell if it was the right decision at the end of the day or not, right? I mean, we'll go through the rest of the the rest of my story here, and the outcome wasn't as, as as I would have hoped it would be, right? And I oftentimes think about what my life would have been like had I had that offer accepted and was able to to get the support to buy the business. Um, how things would have turned out, right? Um, we had the pandemic, we had all these other things that I think all else equal have been tailwinds for a business like that, right? Was it geographically constrained? Sure. Could have a smart guy like me figured out some, some, some ways to, to, to expand it and grow it probably. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. An interesting anecdote here is AJ's most recently released paper is about a competitor to this business in that market. Right. Really? And they've done quite well doing some mm. consolidation, etc. <laughs> so, um, for, for uh, what it's a competitor,
0: about. a competitor to that business, that a search funder acquired.
1: And not no, it is now no. It was run oh. by a, a a local CEO, right? No. I happened to meet the guy, so I know him. I tried to buy his business too, but he wasn't. He was just curious about why this why this guy from Yale like was sending out all these emails, right? So <laughs> <laughs> I had the opportunity to meet with him, right? Like maybe he's bought the business. I don't know. He's he's run a consolidation play. Yeah. Um, he's partnered with a with some other folks to run a consolidation play to, to roll up some MSPs um, in the Connecticut region and beyond. So,
0: Okay. Okay. Well, Judd, we still haven't even gotten to uh, your actual acquisition. So um, take us there, unless I'm missing anything between this point in your search and, and yeah. finding the business that you do buy. So I, uh,
1: I ended up finding the business that I was looking for um, through a, through a pretty interesting, interesting way that I'll, uh, I'll tell you about. So I ended up searching for um, a list of just businesses that didn't fit into other NAICS codes, right? So just a miscellaneous, uh, miscellaneous industry list. Um, And I can distinctly remember one of my interns pulling up the website of the business that I ended up acquiring. And uh, asking me like over his shoulder, like, "Hey, Judd, does this look interesting?" And I was like, "Yeah, like it's re- related to real estate. It looks to kind of be of the right size. Like, let's find the let's find the owner's information and and reach out to them." Um, and then uh, I would oftentimes do kind of a, a quality control check of the information that, that my interns were putting together on a weekly basis. And I can remember having an e- email se- sequence for this miscellaneous industry search and. In, um usually would send out like maybe 10 or 12 emails over a couple of months and uh the but i continuously do this quality control process and i can remember misspelling the owner's name for the first couple of the emails that was sent to them right so that the owners one of the owner's names um had a had a misspelling in it and i ended up correcting that and that was the first email that the owner ended up opening because you can see with the email program like what you're sending what's opened what's not so like maybe it went to his spam the first couple or he just gets a lot of emails and he never opened them um Hmm. but for whatever reason the first one was he he opened was the one that i had made that the change to like spell his name correctly Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so uh the the business owner responded um we started the dialogue. Uh, the business was located in Florida and, and I was in Boston. Um, so I ended up trying to do a lot of kind of preliminary preliminary diligence in and data requests um, over email and over the phone. Uh, did that over 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 a kind of a month-long period, came to to general terms on on price and was getting to the point where it was getting ready to 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 submit a letter of intent. Um, flew back and forth to Florida a handful of times to, to meet with the owners. Always met on site at the business, which in retrospect, I think was an interesting choice for them because we would kind of be alone in the conference room all day. And I can only imagine that their employees were having kind of questions arise and who this guy was, why he was there. They used the, the, the premise of I was a consultant there to kind of help evaluate the business. Um sometimes people talk about whether or not it's a good idea to do that. Uh I think my I thinking's changed a little bit. I I I I submitted to it at the time because again this is my first rodeo and I was just like just trying to get the thing done. Right. But in retrospect, mm. I think I lost a little bit of credibility with the team when my the pretenses under which I met with the owners and then ultimately them before I closed was not entirely accurate. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I have more confidence, or just the ability to to kind of uh, be okay missing out on opportunities, but being kind of more more straightforward and forthright in my interactions. That um, when I do it again, if I do it again, um, when I coach and advise others, I encourage them to to kind of bring the fullest version of the truth to the table um, right from the get go. Because uh, yeah. you never know if you're going to be ultimately come the leader of that organization or those people's boss right yeah. and when they say well wait a minute you told me you were an advisor and now you're telling me that you're my boss and the owner like why should I believe you right yeah. like um anyway so ended up submitting yeah. The, yeah it's a great point the letter of intent and uh, the sellers accepted um, what I should also mention is uh, intermixed in this in this professional version of my life in the background my wife and I were getting ready to have our first child. Um, I was training for, a, an ultra marathon race that I was going to run that summer. So like, I often tell people that, uh, I signed the LOI to buy the business that I bought in, in May of 2018. And my life has kind of been in disarray ever since. <laughs> um, because after that, before we closed, like I was training for this race, we had my son and I was trying to like put together a, a, a multi-million dollar buyout deal to buy a, a small business, right? And, yeah. and ultimately move across country with my young family and try and wrap my arms around a business in a, in a place that I had no connection to and an industry that I had no experience in.
0: Well, before we get into all of that, tell us just a little bit about what you liked about this business and what it and what it did, and any size employees numbers that you can share.
1: Sure, it was around twenty employees, uh, five million in sales, a couple million dollars in profit um, when I identified it, and the business model was uh, was a third party debt collector that collected past due assessments for HOAs, condos, uh, POAs, et cetera, in Florida, and then it had just started its initial expansion into to Georgia and the Carolinas. The interesting thing about this business is the fact that I didn't really look extensively at debt collectors, but when I found this one and uh, I understood the business model, uh, I I really got excited about it because it had operational leverage, right? So the business could uh, operate from its operation center in South Florida and serve multiple geographies from the same place, right? Um, and this was even kind of pre-pandemic, pre-remote work. The business is remote uh, at this point. It didn't start that way, but it has. It's a laptop and cell phone business, right? So you kind yeah. of do it from do it from anywhere. At least the operation side, the sales side. Um, again, had that those aspects of operational leverage where you can hire a, a salesperson to cover a particular geography and territory, and they can go out and and and, and conquer that territory and bring back bring back business, right? Um, and there's no reason that the business can operate kind of in all 50 states with the current model that it has. So that that was part of the reason that I excited. The other part was the underlying uh, debt or assessment that was being collected was backed by real estate, so dissimilar to other forms of consumer debt, like student loans. Well, I guess student loans can't be discharged in bankruptcy, but all all of their student debt can be discharged in bankruptcy and it's not backed by an asset, right? But assessments, um, they're backed by the the asset, the house, right? And you have the ability, um, each state is a little bit differently, but you have the ability to, to file a lien on that property if the folks are behind on their, on their, on their HOA dues um, and ultimately foreclose upon that lien, right. And you're kind of third in line behind the bank and the tax man, right. So you have these, these high priority liens that you can pre place on real property and you can give people a lot of incentive to, to, to make good on that debt. Right. Yep. so it was a very particular unique niche business model again one of those search businesses that you would never know existed until you started bumping around and it also had the on paper had the ability to to kind of uh scale yeah well it's sure a big market
0: i mean every hoa in the country theoretically is your you know your TAM. Yep. um
1: yep and it started in florida in the coming out of the last recession. So like, that's how a business like this was, was born. Um, and Florida has the most HOAs in the U S right. California is number two, Florida is number one. Right. So it's a really good place, uh, to start. Yeah. For a business like this. Um, and to your point, right. Like there are, there are 350,000 of these things across the U S so you have the potential to have 350,000 clients served like only like a thousand of those in its whole lifetime right at any given time it has like a couple hundred active clients right and it's served maybe let's call it a thousand but the the tam is 350k right? wow. so it's huge
0: huge and how competitive was the space i mean is this is this a space where it's it's a it's a young industry i mean obviously debt collection isn't but debt collection targeted at hoas and um yeah and th- assessment fees
1: yeah i think the the innovation of this business model, or it wasn't uh, uh, a regional or small law firm doing the work, um, there wasn't a ton of competition there. There were a few other kind of like-size or smaller uh, collection agencies that operate in the state of Florida. And then your your main competition was small single person law firms that have a relationship with the board president and you're trying to displace that person because you think you can do a more effective job. Right? Yeah. Um, so the primary, there it was competitive in the sense that you're competing against kind of every lawyer and their brother, right? But it wasn't competitive in the sense that, that there were other kind of scaled, sophisticated operators out there trying to do the same thing.
0: Right. That's great. It sounds great. At least we're about sure. to find out if, how great it actually was. <laughs> they,
1: they all do. Will they all do? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Judd, I, I got to ask this. You know, debt collection as uh, as a service, debt collection as a thing. You know, obviously, it's not the most pleasant place to live. You know, the people. You know, you know, um, debt collectors <laughs> uh, are it's not some, it's not the call anybody ever wants to get. It's not, you know, you're, you're basically dealing with distressed situations all day long, consumers in in distress, or maybe not always totally in distress. Maybe they're just somewhat negligent, but I mean, you see where I'm going with this. Did that, did that give you pause to be, to be in a space where there's just, you know, it's kind of dripping with anxiety and desperation?
1: I don't think it did. I, I mean, I come from a, come i guess maybe i come from a background and i have a personality of of just like being firm and fair right yeah. so i brought that to the business right that we're just going to be firm and fair about this stuff yeah um so like going in i think that's the approach that i took like i didn't have a problem with the services that the business provided um somebody has to do it so it might as well be us and we can do yep. it in the, we can do it in a in an efficient and a fair way that creates value for all stakeholders. And I'm I'm really proud of the business that'll become mm-hmm. and the business that it continues to be at this day. I think the the question that you didn't ask but is worth answering is kind of how do I feel about it today, right? So I sometimes I tell people today like there are easier like other 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 searchers people that are looking to buy businesses like you hear people say they're like easier ways to make money. And I think debt collection is one of those industries that would fall in the bucket of like a hard way to make money, right? Like it's fraught with some of the things that you suggested, right? It's very emotional, right? Like it's a grind. You're, you're, you're kind of intertwined with the legal system at any given time where you're, you're getting sued by a consumer protection attorney, or you're having kind of other kind of challenges with regulators, et cetera. And that's just part of a, that's part of the game. And uh, for me, even though I'm kind of firm and fair, I take everything like very personally and very seriously. Right. So that aspect of the business kind of ground me down a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I would do it again on purpose. Right. Like, even though I've gotten this great experience in the debt collection space, like anything beyond kind of like a, an advisor or a consultant, like I'm not necessarily like, itching to go and get back in the trenches of, of one of, uh, of a debt collection business. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, so that aside, um, certainly, yeah, it does just kind of on paper look like a great business. You said $5 million in revenue, a couple million dollars in profit. So that's not, you know, 40% margins or, you know, give yep. or take phenomenal margins, recurring revenue. I mean, you've got these relationships with HOAs who need collection yep. service done month in month out. Um, so uh, you know, and two million dollars in profit, uh, that's a you know that's that's a lot bigger than most searchers get their hands on. Of course you were following a traditional model, so you were looking a little bit bigger, but um it's got all those appealing characteristics, so um no wonder you 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 ran at it okay, so and oh, and by the way, how did your investors feel about this one?
1: We were all we were all excited, right? Um, I had one of my investors come down for one of the site visits that we did. we met with the we met with the owners and we're really kind of evaluating the, we were really trying to stress test the the scalability of the business model. Right. And again, on paper, before we got in under the hood, everything kind of checked out, right. Like the, the the business model has the ability to scale. Okay. So yeah, we were all, we were all, we were all excited about it.
0: Great. Okay. So, um, you buy it unless there's anything in the transaction itself you want to talk about. I suggest we just skip into you being in the seat. Um, Great. So what do you find? What do you find? Because things kind of get real interesting and nasty real quick, as I understood from the case note.
1: Yeah, no, it was a challenging situation. The business had, the business was an innovative business model, right? So like it wasn't something that we could necessarily benchmark or hire a, hire a consultant that has experience doing this exact thing and tell us kind of like what to look for and how to look for it in diligence, right? Like we did, we did everything that we could do, but ultimately that effort fell a little bit short and I identified uh, a few things came to the surface through some, some folks that worked for the business kind of pretty quickly after me buying it that people were, had questions about or were uncomfortable with and they I came in kind of very directly, being the the firm and fair person that I am, and the 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 high ethical standard that I think that I hold myself to. And I came in letting people know that like I was excited about being there and I wanted to kind of grow the business in the right way. And it, I was quickly it was there were there were some things that were quickly brought to my attention that I made the determination that I didn't want to keep doing things that way, right. And that, put me at odds with the sellers of the business um, and required me and my investors to kind of uh, really buckle down and address a lot of things very quickly, right? Um, we had to make some changes to the business model. We had to layer on some additional costs that we didn't anticipate and um, in an attempt to, to, to stabilize the business and, and solidify the business model and shore it up from, uh, from a legal and a regulatory standpoint. Um, and because that put me at odds with the sellers take on this, and again, it's kind of, there's, everybody is entitled to their own opinion, right? They had theirs. Um, but mine was different and I was now the owner of the business. So I wasn't able to rely on them, um, to kind of help, Ease my transition. You hear these stories about like don't change anything in the first ninety days, right? Like yep. spend the first six months like learning the business. I didn't have that luxury, right? And uh, not only did Be- I not because, have because you,
0: you you felt that it was urgent. To well, I felt yeah, I felt write, so
1: strongly but, like needed to make some changes quickly, both from a, a legal and a regulatory standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint right? That like, if I was going to put my mark on this business and we were going to proceed forward in the, in the direction and the vision that I had for the company, we couldn't just kind of like wait and see, right? We had to, we had to take some of those actions pretty, pretty immediately. Um, and because of that, right, not only did I, not only did I have to like make some changes, I didn't have that soft landing that, that people talk about, um, where they had a great relationship with their seller and they were there alongside of them. And, Kind of helped them with all these problems, right? Like I had some, I had some kind of uh, business model and strategy issues, and then I also had these cultural issues, and, and the sellers were were antithetical to what I was trying to accomplish. So this is we were, this we were is quickly okay. at odds.
0: Yeah, just remarkable. So you get in there, you you say that you're. Uh, what is your what is your phrase? Fair and fair and firm. Firm and fair. Firm and yeah. f- firm and fair. Um, you communicate firm, fair, that consistent, consistent. <laughs> that that's going to be the culture yeah. under your leadership. And yeah. a, I guess a couple of people in the organization kind of quietly raise their hands or take you aside and say, you know, we're we're doing the way we do business over here is like maybe a little bit, um, you know, might not meet might not meet the standards of uh, firm and fair. Um, and and so you you realize that the kind of the entire business model, while quote unquote innovative, is actually maybe taking advantage of whatever it's not it's not uh regulators wouldn't like it uh lawyers couldn't be scale right yeah and or and it couldn't be scale yeah
1: i mean you can look at the you can look at it from a lot of different you can look at it from a right wrong lens you can look at it from a scalability lens you can look at it from a, a risk reward lens but ultimately like i was the guy in the seat and and i i I took the action and, and told my investors why I took the action and we just moved forward, right? But it yep. w- ultimately at the end of the day, it was just it was going to have it was going to have impacts that we couldn't even measure or understand, but it was that important to just make the change, right? Yeah. And we started to layer on um, some compliance infrastructure that we knew we needed before I bought the business, but we started to press on that kind of like a little quicker and a little faster, right? Okay. Um, okay. And we knew we needed to, to implement some, some operations infrastructure. That was, that was kind of like independent of all the other stuff that was going on. Right. So like, that was going to be like, those were going to be our big things. Right. But then there was, it was, it was, it was within this, this kind of, uh, this, this environment that we didn't anticipate. Right. It was just kind of super challenging. It was, it was kind of rolling the punches and. to to add kind of insult to injury, right? Like I was at odds with the sellers. I was trying to transform the business on the ground level. And then we were getting demand letters and lawsuits on almost, it felt like a daily basis. It was more like maybe a monthly basis, right? But they were for some of the issues that the, that we were trying to fix. Right. So it was like, I, I, like I took all that really personally, right? It kind of ground me down. It was like, this wasn't me, right? Like I'm I'm trying to change things here. I'm trying to do things a little bit differently, but I still got the same name out front, right? So even though we did an asset sale, we did musical chairs with the LLC names and my LLC ended up being the same, even though I had a different EIN. It, 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 it was the same LLC name as the prior, the prior owners, right? So like when you try and show that to even like, we were in a particularly complex legal case where we we're in front of a judge, like trying to explain to him like how these leverage buyouts work. And he's just like, "I just don't get it. I don't understand. Like this is really complicated, <laughs> right? And, like this is a judge like trying to make decisions on where the liability lies, right?" Um. So just imagine trying to explain that to a, an HOA president or a homeowner that way back when five years ago resurfaces and discovers something that. They don't think it's fair. They don't think it's right. And they want to have they want to have a conversation about it, right? Like we had to we had to clean a lot of that stuff up just because we had reputational risk on the line. But there was the liability and it didn't fall with us, and we were trying to put it on the the, the parties and the entities that you did. And that was that was like a full time job in and of itself. When yeah. when I had this yeah. full time job executing on the thesis that I knew that I wanted to execute on before I bought the business. Right, layered on top of, of having uh, some some cultural issues that I wanted to address, et cetera. So it was, I don't know, it was it was it was hard.
0: Judd, the the hostility that you have now with the sellers that you're experiencing with the sellers. Um, what about with the employees? Are there employees who are loyal to the sellers or loyal to the way things were? And I mean, how, how is this? Yeah, what, what's it look like between you and your and your new
1: employees? Yeah, no, I'll. Uh... I won't answer that question directly, but I will say that we, as we started to execute on our thesis and our strategy, we grew from let's say twenty people at the start it was just a few over handful over twenty to to almost forty five um, over the next two and a half three years. We had we quickly had more new people than we had old people. Right, so like when we were midway, let's call it midway through that transition, at 30 people, right? Like, 15 of those people were new, and less than 15 were the, the 15 of the original 22. Right, so there were there was a fair bit of churn that uh, that that we went through as we tried to, to scale up to meet the opportunity and to um, if you can't change the people, change the people. Right, <laughs> um, so we, we ended up changing a number. A number of folks out uh, mm-hmm. uh, but we were still able to retain um some some of the legacy employees and they've grown in their careers and, and 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 grown as managers and leaders in the in the company to today that i'm again i'm super proud of that fact that uh they uh they were they were on team judd pretty fast i mean their 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 livelihoods depended on it to a certain extent but they they, they just kind of left their egos and, and, and the old ways at the door and, and picked up the new ways kind of almost overnight, right And it was mm-hmm. it was pretty amazing to see that. Not everybody did that and there were some challenges both immediately and then kind of along that along that timeline spectrum to the point where we got um, I, I don't even know how many out of the original 22 that are still there. It's got to be less than uh, it's got to be single digits. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So, in addition to hostility with your seller and, and um, monthly lawsuits, and going in front of judges, and changing the business model, and layering in new operations, and and layering in tech, and uh, you're also dealing with churn and people leaving. I mean, you're trying to yeah. completely change the culture. Unbelievable. Yep. And and so, Judd, then the other kind of obvious question is, um, you know, to, just to put it very bluntly, why wasn't this all of this stuff caught in diligence?
1: I mean, I asked myself that question or I have asked myself that question a lot (laughs) Um, since since I closed. Some of it, like you just couldn't catch unless you knew like what question to ask and you never would have known what question to ask until you like have operated a business in this space for a period of time, right? And because I alluded to this before, like we even hired attorneys to help diligence the business, right, and and offer an opinion on the business model, and they did in the typical way, typical non-committal way that attorneys do, like yeah, like this is on the spectrum, like these are, this is, this is permitted, this is not permitted, et cetera. Um, but the way in which these guys were going about, uh, going about what they were going about, it was, I don't know, like could have I caught it? Uh, I don't think so. Right. Yeah. Um, but as I, as I look forward to, to kind of continuing my career, I learned a lot from it. Right. And I think I've got, I think I've got ways to, 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 to ask different types of questions or maybe, maybe a different way to answer your questions. Like, could have you caught it or not? It's not the right question is the right question is, were there other signals Right, that, that, that could have alluded to the fact that something wasn't quite right. The answer to that was yes. Right, in um, every single business, I mean, I invest in I invest in, in small businesses myself. Right, and I, I saddle up alongside entrepreneurs and try and help them understand the opportunities that they're looking at. And uh, what do people say? Like every deal has hair on it. Right, so like right. there is no perfect acquisition opportunity. But hindsight being twenty twenty, and when you look back at the 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 opportunity that I had, there were some other were some other indicators where there was smoke right and Mm -hmm. we we justified those we dismissed those we found ways to we felt to address those but when you look at the picture more broadly um at a later date you realize that those were just symptoms of a broader underlying problem that we we hadn't discovered
0: yeah Mm. so so difficult um and we haven't even touched on the fact, let's let's do that now. What's going on in your personal life? So you also yeah. you were you're doing you're conducting your search from Boston. Yeah, This business was in Florida and you move your family to Florida.
1: Sure. Well, my wife was living in Hartford. I was searching from Boston. Hartford, right? We were no. switching weekends. We had an apartment both places. So we were switching ah. weekends back and forth. Um, and I alluded to this before, like we had we had my son in June of 2018. I had signed the LOI in May, right? And then we closed in November. So we were new parents. And my wife at that point, like, she was on maternity leave and she had she had moved into my 300-square-foot studio apartment that I had, my bachelor pad in Boston, right? That I was that I was Whoa. walking into the accelerator offices out of, right? So we had our son. We had 300 square feet, right? Like, Whoa. I was working 80 hours a week trying to trying to like close this deal and she was trying to like figure out how to be a new mother right like all at the same time right and it was kind of like we were getting to the point well like if this doesn't work out like what are we going to do are you going to like quit the accelerator and come to hartford because like i still have a job there and we were just trying to like stiff arm a bunch of those conversations and assume that the business was going to close and we were going to ride away into the sunset and, and, and move south to sunny florida right in time for the winter right which ended up being what happened but there were a lot of kind of underlying conversations that were that were happening and a lot of change that happened in our life right and when i reflect on the experience i think a lot about like i i was i was becoming a different person right mm-hmm. like and i couldn't anticipate some of those things when i was search when i was contemplating search when i started search right before i bought the business and then as i started to operate the business like and i think this happens to everybody naturally but i don't think a lot of people necessarily try and anticipate some of those changes or as thoughtful as they they might be able to be with with the benefit of kind of hearing someone like to me tell my story and be like oh yeah you're right like this is a this is a 10-year commitment and my life's going to look a lot different 10 years from now right so like as you start to project and think about those things in the future um hopefully maybe learn from my experience when I articulate that like I started out, we were married and like a dual income couple. Right. And like we went along the spectrum where we had children and we moved and, and Jed and got punched in the face uh, at, at his business. Right. And all these things were kind of happening in the background.
0: When you say you were a different person or becoming a different person, you know, all, all these external things are happening, but can you, can you put some color to that? Like, how your I mean I assume you mean your actual perspective and personality was was shifting.
1: Yeah, no, I think priorities is a good way to think about it. Right. So like you can't you can't know how your priorities are going to change like before your parent, after your parent, right? Like, I mean we didn't we didn't like meet each other and get married. We had been married for quite a while. So like my wife and I, we we had a nice life. We really enjoyed our relationship. And then and then my son Logan came in and blew all that up for us. Right, we had another human being to care for, and we had to we had to figure out what that meant. And uh, I think like some of my ambition and aspiration, like at the beginning of search, was like more self centered that I wanted to do this for myself, yeah. and I wanted to scale the opportunity that I was pursuing to like the capabilities that I felt that I had. And then as 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 my son came into the picture, it was more about like how do I support my wife and my family, and that was. Yeah. Quickly came at odds at like what was required of me as a fiduciary, right, and as the CEO of this business. Where, where not only did I have these new priorities in my personal life, but like I had twenty plus people that scaled to forty plus people that depended on me on a weekly or biweekly basis to like make sure they got a paycheck. Right. And then I had investors and limited partners that expected uh, a return on their investment. Right. And I had the same, like I had, I was, I was invested, right. Both my personal money as a, as a, I mean, I, I invested personal money in the deal alongside of my investors. Plus I had carried interest on the line. Right. So all those things kind of, I don't know, they came, they they started to come to a head, right? Because it's just a lot, right, to have on your plate all at once um, as you're as you're evolving as uh, as your personal as your personal life is
0: evolving. Well, it, it would it would be a ton to have on your plate, even if acquiring the business went well. Yeah, but, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I mean, it would be a huge amount to have on your plate, even if it the is. acquisition yeah, was yeah. going well. But your yeah, yeah. yours was a calamity so that's I'm just I'm over I'm getting anxiety over here just like thinking about it and, and putting myself in your shoes um uh okay so so you start but you do start slowly painfully making the needed corrections to the business um yep. so so kind of Fast forward a little bit, and I, what, what did the note say? About 18 months later, you were starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel f- in terms of getting getting the business on sound footing and and yep. being able to be positioned then to go attack the, the, the opportunity yeah, yeah. properly?
1: You know what? Like a year and a half from November 2018, you know when that is? Right. <laughs> March. March 2020. Yep. March 2020, right? So felt like things were settling down a little bit, right? Had settled the indemnity claim. Had kind of had kind of uh, addressed a lot of the the legal matters. Had, we're we're well on our way to implementing the new technology stack. Had uh, had grown the headcount and brought in some new people, some new, some new leaders, managers, um, etc. And my birthday is uh, in March, and I can remember being uh, out for lunch with my wife in Florida, right uh, right before the world came to a screeching halt. Um, feeling like more optimistic than I had in a while, right? Um, and then, and then COVID hit, which kind of put me back into that cycle at the business of a ton of stress, right? For very different reasons, right? It was yeah. more like, well, how do we? Are we an essential business? Or are we not an essential business? How do we operate remotely, right? Like, what impact is this going to have? What what macroeconomic impact is this going to have on the business, right? And initially, it was like, well. Uh, the stock market crashed right like it looked like we were we were headed for a recession very quickly and that was going to have uh, a lagging uh, tailwind benefit to my business because we're a debt collector right and then and then what happened right the government printed trillions of dollars and injected it straight into the real economy and that's where my, my debtors, right, or future debtors, lie, right? So they were all sitting at home watching Netflix on their couch, not forgetting to pay their HOA dues anymore because, like, that's their sanctuary. That's the only place they got to go, <laughs> right? Um, so, our our sales funnel it didn't take like a nosedive, but it kind of like flatlined, right? Like all the growth and the infrastructure, the growth infrastructure that we invested in was like just wasn't bearing fruit for for kind of like twelve months or so. Um, because the, the environment was just so challenging, right? So it was like, it was entering this after, after the initial, uh, initial phase that we talked about in the first year and a half or so, right? Like I was headed into this, this next phase, which ended up being just as ch- challenging and stressful as, as the first phase. And it wasn't, uh, I don't know. It led to the point where it just wasn't sustainable, at least for me personally.
0: Mm-hmm. And so what does that mean? What, what, what were you considering?
1: What, what did you do? Yeah. So, uh, let's call that, that second phase, the the second year and a half, um, my wife and I were continuing to have these conversations about expanding our family. Um, she ended up getting pregnant again. So we were about to have another child and, uh, we were living isolated in South Florida with no community. Right. So like during the first year and a half, it was so challenging that, uh, Outside of a few people that we had met at our church, like we just didn't know anybody there, right? We didn't have any friends or family around. And then the world shut down. You kind of like just had to keep to yourself. And we were just feeling, I mean, my wife had lost her husband to this business, right? I was just kind of either thinking about it or there all the time. And she was still working part-time and raising my son. And then we were about to have another baby, right? Um, How we, we old was got your, first,
0: your first son at this point?
1: Yeah. So he was born in uh, the middle of 2018. So he would have been going on two years old. Right. Um, And actually, when the pandemic first happened, it was like really great for us because we got like a reprieve. Right. Like I didn't have to be at the office because there was nobody there. Right. And we didn't have child care because the daycare shut down. So like I had to come home and be with my son so that my wife could could work her part time schedule. Right. So I would come home I would go to work in the morning, work out of the empty office just to have the, the the silence to be able to get some work done. And then I'd come home at one or two and and uh, and my wife or my son and I, I'd take them in the stroller and we'd go on like, I can remember, literally remember this, the route of the run, but I would take them on this six, six mile run like every day for like 21 straight days. It was crazy, right? Like i never had that consistent of a workout schedule since I bought the business. But like every day, that's just kind of what we did. And then Mm -hmm. I would plug back in and keep working, um, after my wife got done. Right. But like, Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, like we're, we're like thinking about expanding our family and we find out that like this joyous thing that we're going to have, we're going to have a daughter to add to the, to add to our, to add to our family. But it felt like hollow and empty, right? Like I'm just working all the time. Right. We're not spending a whole lot of time with each other because either one of us is with the kid or the other is with the kid. And when we're not with the kid, we're working. So we decided to, I decided like that was the first, the first point where I decided like, I really need to make a change here. And like, there's no, it's nonsense for me to go work from an empty office when I run a a business that, that, that you can run from anywhere with a laptop and a cell phone. So I made the decision that, that it would be best for my family, for us to, to return to central PA, north central PA, where, um, where we grew up and, both sets of grandparents were to get some some support with my son and uh to help uh with my daughter as she was going to come to the world at the, at the at the end of that year um she ended up uh being born in uh december of 2020 mm-hmm. um, so that that fall we we moved back to pennsylvania i was commuting back and forth i'd go back to florida um a week or two each month um and then returned to Pennsylvania. And when my daughter was born, this was in the, the height of one of the second surges of COVID. So like, we just kind of like stayed put for like three months or so.
0: Yeah, December 2020, that was that was Delta time, as I yep. recall. Okay. Um, and so did this move to central Pennsylvania with the two sets of grandparents? Uh, did it help your family life?
1: It did, but it was a Band-Aid on something that needed surgery, if I'm being honest. Right. Um, I mean, it was it was nice to be around to be around our families. Um, unfortunately, this isn't really in the case note, but it's kind of like an aside. Like I hadn't lived in this area of the country since I was eighteen, right? And I had kind of changed a lot, but everybody here stayed the same, and that created some friction. Um, I mean, if you recall, it was like the election cycle <laughs> and and COVID and vaccine and misinformation and all this stuff so like there was some like some underlying friction that i didn't anticipate i just thought it was be this like panacea of like wonderfulness that like i got to be back around my family And what i realized is like i was a bit different and i was like stressed out and working a lot so like it didn't it didn't manifest exactly the way that we anticipated but it was it was a benefit to us right and that benefit it was uh but it was ultimately a band-aid on something that needed some more More dramatic action that I ended up taking, and
0: what was that dramatic action?
1: So uh, uh, I caught like a year or so into that, into that experience of being back here in Pennsylvania, or six months or so the following spring after my daughter was born. Um, It got to the point where uh, my wife uh, was diagnosed with uh, postpartum anxiety and depression. I was having kind of uh, my own mental and physical struggles um with some different stuff and it it wasn't getting kind of like any different or any better at the business right it was just kind of like continued to be it continued to be a grind um and i can distinctly remember uh going out for 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 a run and i often come up with some of my best or wildest ideas when I'm out, when I'm out in the mountains running. Um, and I came back and I told my wife, I was like, I just, I got to find a way to take a step back. Right. And she was in the, the deepest, darkest days of, of her depression. So she just kind of like shrugged her shoulders and was like, yeah, makes sense. <laughs> right. So wow. I kind of like, I, I felt like I got to the point where like I was living with this person that was my best friend. Right. And, and my partner in life and we had gotten to this this point of, like indifference right between the two of us and it just became super clear to me that like i needed to, to to have the courage to take action um to to frankly save my marriage and 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 make sure i was living the values that that i thought i espoused right of, of being of being a good father of being a good husband right um, well also, making sure I fulfilled my responsibilities to to my investors in the business. Right, so. oh,
0: man. Well, it sounds like um, it, uh, it, obviously this whole story is pretty brutal from the moment you acquire. Um, but it sounds like your actual decision to take action um, was it was not brutal. I mean, it was it was kind of an, it was kind of like an epiphany on this run, or, or do I have that wrong? It was it was yeah, a no, fla- I, it was think a
1: flash. You're right. I mean. Yeah. I mean, it was, it felt like the right decision. It felt like kind of like an easy decision to make because mm-hmm. I it just it didn't, I mean, what were the other choices, right? Yeah. Like just, yeah. just keep going, like take all this risk, et cetera. That being said, like executing on that decision is an entirely different story, right? Like it's hard to approach business partners and say like, I just can't do this anymore. Right. Like it's hard to, especially when, when, when I would say like your life is not on solid footing to like think clearly about the situation and make sure you conduct yourself in the best way. I was fortunate to have like the cohort of CEOs that that I grew up with it, being able to kind of interact with them and get some advice and having uh, them help level set me. Right. Uh, But it was still a really hard experience to, to kind of go through and relay the information and, and, start to come up with a game plan and know that it wasn't a light switch, right? Like I wasn't, uh, I'm not, I wasn't then and I'm not now the type of person that's just going to drop the mic and walk out of the room and say like, go figure it out, right? Like I had, I had responsibilities there and I felt, I felt strongly about making sure that the business um, would have the best chance of continuing to, to succeed without me, right? And that meant that it was going to take a while. Right. And when I approached my investors, I was like, I mean, things are, I've got to make a change personally. Right. Uh, But I recognize that, that it's not going to happen overnight. Right. So Mm -hmm. we've got to, we've got to start working on this together. Um, so ultimately it took, it took almost six months to to transition out of the business and I'm still, I'm still involved today, just not in a day-to-day operating capacity. Um, which was a a lot better
0: was it a hard sell for lack of a better word to your, to your investors they, they, I, uh, I assume you've been communicating with them all the while. So this might sure. not have been completely yeah, yeah. out of left field. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think it came completely out of left field there. They'd be the only ones who could answer that question, but it, I don't think it was a hard sell in the sense that like, I don't know for better or for worse, maybe I didn't conduct myself the way I should have, but I kind of like bared my soul a little bit. Right. And, 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 was open with them as 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 open as i was in the case study as open as i'm being with you and your audience right now right like like this was really hard i had a tough thing going on i wasn't going to be so non-humble about it to just try and pretend like there wasn't a problem right so Mm -hmm. like I, i in pretty explicit terms like said there was a problem right also said that i wasn't running away that i was willing to kind of continue to to kind of take the personal risk to 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 have there be a time period over which we kind of figured this out it wasn't an immediate thing but it was urgent right um and it was something to be needed to be addressed and, and fortunately, we were able to identify a leader inside of the business um was going to be suited to to take over as as ceo so from a change management perspective um The employees didn't have to deal with uh, an external entrant at, at, again, what was a critical time for the businesses. They're trying to continue to navigate the pandemic and and, and find ways to to ramp up and scale up the sales process, right? So we had an internal candidate come in and and take over, and I had the opportunity to, to, to provide a lot of support and do a warm handoff over a, a period of months frankly um to to make sure that that one is as, as smoothly as possible
0: that's yeah that's good one one happy occurrence in the story um Jud, you, you know you you're you um are an ambitious person you you said earlier how you you know you, you look to do hard things you look to you know to do things that are you know make an impact um you, so typically somebody like that has an ego, you know, probably all, all, all people who buy businesses. And I certainly include myself here. Um, we, we have egos and our, our professional success is an important part of our identity. Um, was your, was your ego, how did your ego deal with all of this happening?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. (laughs) Um, I think that, uh, I like to think that that I'm able to check my ego at the door, but at the same time, right? Like it was, it was like bruised, and maybe it's still a little bit fragile to this day, right? Yeah. Like writing the writing the case note was therapeutic in nature, right? And it was one of the one of the personal selfish drivers to do it. The other was like this stuff's hard. Like other people need to know about this. Like I I feel like I can add some value to the to the community if I put this stuff out there, but you have to be willing to kind of humble yourself a little bit to do that. Right. And I'd argue, right, that uh I don't know, my my lesson in humility may have been extreme, but don't go down this path if you're not prepared to be humbled, because it is going to happen. <laughs> right. Like no matter what your outcome in, no matter what type of business you buy, it, no matter how much money you make or don't make right like you're going to be humbled many times along the way and if you're not prepared for that or that doesn't sound like fun then like you should like run the other way and not do this because it's definitely Mm going to happen (laughs) right Mm -hmm. um so yeah I, i don't know i think my i think i think i'm a low ego guy to begin with which is why i'm i'm so i'm so open to kind of discussing this stuff and sharing it but i think that uh i think you kind of have to have that mix of of confidence and humility right like in most things in life but maybe in this space more than more than most where you have to be you have to be a type a go-getter bias right for action kind of guy to get anything done because sometimes you just got to put the weight of the world on your shoulder but if you don't have an equal or greater part of your of your persona that's, that's humbo and humble and and low ego, like it's going to be challenging. Right. Um, Anyway. Yeah. Well,
0: I, and to that point um, of, of all of the kind of all that happened, um, you know, I guess, I guess the question would be. This this stuff that's hard, you know. What about I guess? What about your search is in kind of? Sorry, your story is intrinsic
1: to search. I can reflect on both during the search and then during the operations phase, complaining about how hard it was. To like some of my mentors, right? Like Jim Sharp's a, a friend and mentor of mine, AJ as well, where we would stay periodically in touch, and I often found myself complaining that it was like hard to get an LOI accepted or it was hard to buy a business. And then when I was operating, talking about all the hard things and I can remember getting like a little bit of pushback from them. Like, well, what did you expect? Right. Mm-hmm. Like this stuff is hard. And, and not only that, AJ in particular, I can remember a conversation with him where he was like, well, you think it's easy to become a partner at McKinsey. Right. Like, do you think it's easy to like uh, rise up the ranks at, at Goldman? Right. Like, most of the things that the MBAs choose to do ambitious MBAs choose to do are hard right um, and I think your question about like what is intrinsic to search right I think I think the, the thing that I think the thing that's intrinsic to search is maybe how personal it becomes right or how personal it can become when you're when you're undertaking some of these kind of responsibilities right so like I can imagine, I mean, maybe you get really personally involved on the on the partner track at a consultancy or in high finance, right? But Like at the end of the day, I feel like you can probably be like a little bit more dispassionate about your your employer or or whatever, right? Like at this point, like you are your own employer. Like certainly you have stakeholders and or bosses or however you want to think about them, but it just becomes so personal so fast, right? Mm. And the I think like the during the search, like. And in the operating phase, you have, like, all these ups and downs, right? But, like, what makes it so hard is is that it becomes so personal and so fast. And if you don't have, like, a good support group or a network, um, that, that just even magnifies that even further, right? So, like, I mean, it's still hard to dampen those things with a peer group or YPO or EO or Vistage, right? But those things help, and I think people people should do those if they can't if they can't create it themselves um but it's just it just gets so personal so fast
0: last question for you judd and before you tell us where how people can reach you um you do see a future for yourself and you said you'll probably be in small business from here on out um despite the fact that you've got you know broken bones to show for your first experience um what what is it that keeps you addicted
1: uh I mean, I think it's a, a good use of my experience and skills and aspirations, right? I just, I don't know, like I grew up in, in an area that like there are only small businesses here, right? Yeah. Like that's what the economy, the entire economy is made out of, right? Like even like the garbage collection, there is no waste management. They don't come here, right? Because it's just like too small of a market, right? So like the fabric of the society in which I was raised was composed of these. Right. And I've got many family members that are, are, are entrepreneurs. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's something that just like resonates with me um, in, in a huge way. Like when you go to business school, you get caught up in in like working for the big company and having a stable job and getting the stock options and, and, and those kinds of things. And I certainly got caught up in a little bit of, myself but like I quickly pushed it aside and I was just like that's just not me right like I'm not gonna be happy there right like um anyway so I I I imagine that I'll I'll always be involved in in the small business world and I think after a bit of reflection uh I operate at the highest level and the best when I sit in somewhere in between like a purely passive investor and a purely operational day-to-day CEO right um so um trying to, to figure out exactly what that looks like moving forward. But uh, it'll, be, it'll be trying to operate there as, as, as often, as frequently as I can.
0: How can pe- people reach out to you, Judd?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, as mentioned, I, I I have invested in a fair number of, of search deals. So if you're raising money for a deal, certainly uh, reach out to me. Um, I also do some uh, paid coaching and advisory work for, for CEOs. So if you're interested in, in in having a periodic touch point with me and you think I can add value, um, hit me up on LinkedIn or uh, just send me an email. It's easy. Judd, uh, my first name dot, my last name, Larson at com.
0: Great. Judd, thank you again for coming and sharing this, uh, this extraordinary and difficult story. Um, I, uh, I, 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 you know, it's important that stories like these be told and that they're not all, uh, happy stories, uh, which, uh, you know, acquiring minds, probably 95% of my stories are, are that way. So it's important you know, to, to have ones like yours aired as well. So thanks for being transparent. Um, I think this is going to be super valuable to folks and I imagine you'll hear from a lot of them. So, and congratulations on surviving. As I said, at the top, I think your, your story is worthy of a lot of admiration. I mean, what an incredibly difficult situation and, you survived it, and I think with your 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 family and your values intact, and and that's about you know that was what was at stake.
1: Yeah, you learn the most from the hardest the hardest experiences. So yeah, thanks for having me. Well, appreciate it. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and hope this is uh, helpful to to your listeners.